0: Hey, This episode is about uh, Thoreau talking about seeing a Native American um, trying to sell baskets door-to-door and the response that that person gets and how he perceives that and uh, in the commentary I get into that a little bit Um, and him and his relations with the Native Americans, uh, the Nipmuc people of Concord in the surrounding area um, as well as uh, getting into the whole idea of um, beware of all enterprises involving new clothes Um, so he he talks about weaving a basket and he talks about capitalism and frankly how he was a capitalist and was actually a very good business person Um, although he doesn't actually acknowledge it like that but he goes on for two pages about all the things you have to do when you're in business, or if you're a writer, or if you're somebody who's trying to conduct the business of a uh, higher spiritual life um, at Walden Pond. So, enjoy! Not long since, a strolling Indian went to sell baskets at the house of a well-known lawyer in my neighborhood. "'Do you wish to buy any baskets?' he asked. "'No, we do not want any,' was the reply. "'What?' exclaimed the Indian as he went out the gate. "'Do you mean to starve us?' Having seen his industrious white neighbors so well off that the lawyer had only to weave arguments, and by some magic wealth and standing followed, he had said to himself, "'I will go into business. I will weave baskets. "'It is a thing which I can do.' thinking that when he had made the baskets, he would have done his part, and then it would be the white man's to buy them. He had not discovered that it was necessary for him to make it worth the other's while to buy them, or at least make him think that it was so, or to make something else which it would be worth his while to buy. I too had woven a kind of basket of a delicate texture, but I had not made it worth anyone's while to buy them. Yet, not the less, in my case, did I think it worth my while to weave them, and instead of studying how to make it worth men's while to buy my baskets, I studied rather how to avoid the necessity of selling them. The life which men praise and regard as successful is but one kind. Why should we exaggerate any one kind at the expense of the others?' Finding that my fellow citizens were not likely to offer me any room at the courthouse, or any curacy, or living anywhere else, but I must shift for myself, I turned my face more exclusively than ever to the woods, where I was better known. I determined to go into business at once, and not wait to acquire the usual capital, using such slender means as I had already got. My purpose in going to Walden Pond was not to live cheaply nor to live dearly there, but to transact some private business with the fewest obstacles, to be hindered from accomplishing which, for want of a little common sense, a little enterprise and business talent, appeared not so sad as foolish. I've always endeavored to acquire strict business habits. They are indispensable to every man. If your trade is with this celestial empire, then some small counting house on the coast, in some Salem harbor, it will be fixture enough. You will export such articles as the country affords, purely native products, much ice and pined timber, and a little granite, always in native bottoms. These will be good ventures. To oversee all the details yourself in person, to be at once pilot and captain, and owner and underwriter, to buy and sell and keep the accounts, to read every letter received and write or read every letter sent, to super- superintend the discharge of imports night and day, to be upon many parts of the coast almost at the same time. Often the richest freight will be discharged upon a Jersey shore. To be your own telegraph, unweariedly sweeping the horizon, speaking all passing vessels bound coastwise, to keep up a steady dispatch of commodities for the supply of such a distant and exorbitant market, to keep yourself informed of the state of the markets, prospects of war and peace everywhere, and anticipate the tendencies of trade and civilization taking advantage of all the results of all exploring expeditions, using new passages and all improvements in navigations, charts to be studied, the position of reefs and new lights and buoys to be ascertained, and ever and ever and ever the logarithmic tables to be corrected, for by the error of some calculator the vessel often splits upon a rock that should have reached a friendly pier. There is the untold fate of La Perouse, universal science to be kept pace with, studying the lives of all great discoverers and navigators, great adventurers and merchants from Hanno and the Phoenicians down to our day in fine account of stock to be taken from time to time to know how you stand. It is a labor to task the faculties of a man. Such problems of profit and loss, of interest, of tear and tret, and gouging all kinds in it As demand a universal knowledge. I have thought that Walden Pond would be a good place for business, not solely on account of the railroad and the ice trade. It offers advantages which may not be good policy to divulge. It is a good post and a good foundation. No Neva marshes to be filled, though you must everywhere build on piles of your own driving. It is said that a flood tide with a westerly wind and ice in the Neva would sweep St. Petersburg from the face of the earth. As this business was to be entered into without the usual capital, it may not be easy to conjecture where those means, that will still be indispensable for every such undertaking, were to be obtained. As for clothing, to come at once to the practical part of the question, perhaps we are led oftener by the love of novelty and a regard for the opinions of men in procuring it than by a true utility. Let him who has work to do recollect that the object of clothing is, first, to retain the vital heat, and secondly, in this state of society, to cover nakedness, and he may judge how much of any necessary or important work may be accomplished without adding to his wardrobe. Kings and queens who wear a suit but once, though made by some tailor or dressmaker to their majesties, cannot know the comfort of wearing a suit that fits they are no better than wooden horses to hang the clean clothes on every day our garments become more assimilated to ourselves receiving the impress of the wearer's character until we hesitate to lay them aside without such delay in medical appliances and some such solemnity even as our bodies no man ever stood the lower in my estimation for having a patch in his clothes yet i am sure that there is greater anxiety commonly to have fashionable or at least clean and unpatched clothes, than to have a sound conscience. But even if the rent is not mended, the worst vice betrayed is improvidence. I sometimes try my acquaintances by such tests as this. Who could wear a patch or two extra seams only over the knee? Most behave as if they believe that their prospects for life would be ruined if they should do it. It would be easier for them to hobble into town with a broken leg than with a broken pantaloon. Often, if an accident happens to a gentleman's legs, they can be mended. But if a similar accident happens to the legs of his pantaloons, there's no help for it. For he considers not what is truly respectable, but what is respected. We know but few men, a great many coaches, coats and breeches. dress a scarecrow in your last shift, you standing shiftless by, who would not soonest salute the scarecrow. Passing a cornfield the other day, close by a hat and coat on a stake, I recognized the owner of the farm. He was only a little more weather-beaten than when I saw him last. I have heard of a dog that barked at every stranger who approached his master's premises with clothes on, but it was easily quieted by a naked thief. It is an interesting question how far men would retain their relative rank if they were divested of their clothes." Could you, in such a case, tell surely of any company of civilized men which belonged to the more respected class? When Madame Pfeiffer, in her adventurous travels around the world from east to west, had got so near home as Asiatic Russia, she says that she felt the necessity of wearing other than a traveling dress when she meant to m- meet the authorities, for she was now in a civilized country where people are judged by their clothes, judged of by their clothes. Even in our democratic New England towns, the accidental possession of wealth and its manifestation in dress and and equipage alone obtain for the possessor almost universal respect. But they who yield such respect, numerous as they are, are so far heathen and need to have a missionary sent to them. Besides, clothes introduced sewing, a kind of work which you may call endless. A woman's dress, at least, is never done. A man who has at length found something to do will not get a new suit to do it in. For him, the old will do. That has lain dusty in the garret for an indeterminate period. Old shoes will serve a hero longer than they have served his valet. If a hero ever has a valet, bare feet are older than shoes, and he can make them do. Only they who go to soirees and legislative halls must have new coats, coats to change as often as the man changes in them. But, if my jacket and trousers, my hat, and shoes are fit to worship God in, they will do will they not? Who ever saw his old clothes, his old coat, actually worn out, resolved into its primitive elements, so that it was not a deed of charity to bestow it on some poor boy by him perchance to be bestowed on some poorer still, or shall we shall we say richer, who could do who could do with less? I say. Beware of all enterprises that require new clothes, and not rather a new wearer of clothes. If there is not a new man, how can the new clothes be made to fit? If you have any enterprise before you, try it in your old clothes. All men want, not something to do with, but something to do, or rather something to be. Perhaps we should never procure a new suit however ragged or dirty the old, until we have so conducted, so enterprised, or sailed in some way that we feel like new men in the old, and that to retain it would be like keeping new wine in old bottles. Our molting season, like that of the fowls, must be a crisis in our lives. The loon retires to solitary ponds to spend it, thus also the snake casts its slough and the caterpillar its wormy coat by an internal industry and expansion, for clothes are but our outmost cuticle and mortal coil. Otherwise, we shall be found sailing under false colors and be inevitably cashiered at last by our own opinion, as well as that of mankind. Hey, so I just read this section, um, starting with the uh, Indian basket, and uh, I think that it's very interesting i um I don't think that Henry's really trying to insult Indians. He's sort of trying to make a larger point about um being an artist or a writer because I feel like he's using the metaphor of business um to um, you know, to sort of say like, this is what I've learned. And he uses this incredible metaphor of basket and he introduces it as a literal basket, right? The, the Indian, the Native American, um, which actually, by the way, um, the Concord was, um, uh, had Nipmuc people, N-I-P-M-U-C- um, people on its land before the white settlers came. Um, it's Nipmuc, uh, land and for land acknowledgements. That's generally the, um, the accepted group. Um, but there were many other tribes in Massachusetts, um, in the area. So I'm not sure actually which tribe this person belonged to. There weren't a lot of Native Americans in Concord at Henry's time. Um, he did meet some. He went to Maine. He actually hired a, a gentleman named Joe Polis in Maine um, to take him on a uh, um, a, a long um, uh, camping um, trip up of the river in Maine. Um, and there's documentation on that. Joe Polis is his name if you want to do that kind of research. Um, and, and also Thoreau's whole relationship with... Um, Native Americans is generally one of, you know, the idea of the noble savage. And, uh, you know, rather than any actual impressions or, um, you know, people that he, like, he didn't really seek out the community. There were um, uh, Mashpee people um, in Cape Cod, as there still are today, and they're still fighting to hang on to their land. Um, When I was a kid, we would go to the beach and there was a gentleman who was taking money um, for the cars to park, and I remember my father um, you know sort of making a point of you know there was one day when we we went to that guy, paid him our money, and he said, "Today is the last day that i 'll be collecting money tomorrow. The government is taking this over so I think that was the eighties or something, so there's still a lot of a lot of issues <laughs> with Native American. Um, land being taken and the american government still reneging on all of their policies and promises and whatever um so uh i i don't think that of all the of all the people to um the writers of henry's time i generally feel that henry was um a little bit more enlightened than most. Um, you can also, like Mark Twain, I think is a, actually an excellent example of someone who um, tries too hard to fight and encourage this horrible stereotype, um, especially in, I think it's um, it's in Tom Sawyer. There's literally a, um, a grave to Mark, the gentleman who um, Mark Twain had written about in Tom Sawyer, um, Samuel Clemens, um, from Hannibal, Missouri. Um, who was a Native American uh, man who was actually very well respected in the town, um, but he uh, he the publicity around Mark Twain has overshadowed this um, decent man's life, and so literally there's a tombstone for a human, and and honestly I can't remember his name now that I'm trying to think of it, um, but the tombstone says here is uh, the gentleman's name. Um, also known as Injun Joe, um which is super offensive and horrible and like just all kinds of wrong <laughs> so um uh you know and anyway so those those are just two examples, and I feel like I'm saying all of this as an introduction um and maybe I'm making actually excuses for the way that he's that Thoreau is talking about this Indian. Um, going door to door selling baskets because I feel like he's kind of making a negative example Um, and he's trying to um, you know all of the previous chapters have been about or not chapters but um, pages have been about how Thoreau is generally against capitalism and selling your soul but um, Thoreau actually had to work at his family's pencil factory Um, or not factory like they had a you know, a building where they created pencils and Henry was actually, um, pretty good at having to keep all of the accounts. Um, so he was, he knew business. He knew it intimately. Um, anybody who tries to paint the picture in his biography that he was just a writer who walked around nature a lot. That's really not true. Um, and you know, not, not that he was also trying to like give up all material goods or whatever. Um, His father ran the business, but he helped his father. Um, He actually helped um, create a new formula for the lead in the pencil itself. Um, And his uncle had discovered a um, a, a, a strain of plumbago somewhere in New Hampshire. So they were actually able to source that. And that's um, either it's mixed with lead or however it was used in those days. Um, and anyway, the Thoreau family pencil business um, actually turned into a plumbago business because um, newspapers and printing they turned to plumbago as a source of um, you know ink or you know whatever that the the chemical mixture is um, to create um, pictures and and printing in newspapers and stuff like that um, so he he helped out with the family business. He actually there are there are records in his journals where he he's going to New York on business trips and things and he's negotiating and, you know, he's demanding. um, He's demanding that the bills be paid because his father is too uh, is too nice. So I think it's kind of hysterical. Um, and I sort of see Thoreau getting back to the basket. Thoreau turning to the Native American uh, you know in in this rhetorical um situation, saying that you know you have to figure out um either uh right so he's he's saying um right so first he says uh you know do you mean to starve us you know at asking um uh, putting the the Native American in this position of you know like putting guilt on white people because as if, as if the only expectation is that the white people are there to help provide for beggars and people who are um, trying to make a go of capitalism, right? So he sets up that situation first, which is kind of absurd and kind of also like just weird. And uh, it, makes, it makes me very uncomfortable, But then he goes on to say that he's assuming that the Native American is thinking, well, the lawyer, and he gets into the metaphor, the lawyer only has to weave arguments, and by some magic, wealth and standing automatically follows. Um, Which is also like a clever, like he's kind of calling out the absurdity of the white culture as well, because um, like there's this very weird... uh, Construct of, you know, you get an education, you talk to the right people, and then literally the only work you have to do is talk, um, which is a very weird thing when you think about it. Um, and lots of lawyers are also, um, I, I think that the whole profession of lawyers is filled with a lot of people who are um, doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it for wealth, um, and they like the idea of manipulation. Um, and then there are good people, of course, but I think that that seeing it from Henry's perspective and also the perspective of the Native American that it is sort of like how did you how did you use all of your white privilege to get to a situation where you just have to talk for a living and you just have to weave arguments, so I think that's like the second big piece of it that is like a really great um, thing for Henry to point out at all. Um, and then, so he's moving to the, he's shifting to the next thing. So, you know, he, the, he had said to him, the Native American said to himself, I will go into business. I will weave baskets. It's a thing that I can do. Right. And again, like the train of thought, um, thinking that all I have to do is make the baskets, I will have done my part, and then it's the white man's duty to buy them. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's, that's almost um, verbatim of what's in the book. Um, he had not discovered, this is a quote, he had not discovered that it was necessary for him to make it worth the other's while to buy them, or at least make him think that it was so, or to make something else which it would be worth his while to buy. Now, this is sort of where the shift begins to happen, because he's like, um, you know, that Native American's not thinking like a capitalist. He's not thinking like somebody who actually wants to sell things, Um, like, A, necessary for him to make it worth the other's while to buy them, right, or at least make him think that it was so, um, because you know, if you can advertise, if you can manipulate, if you can convince somebody that they're either doing a good deed for you or they're buying a basket of superior quality and all that kind of, um, bullshit, whatever. Um, so right. So that's something else. Um, or, you know, at at the very least to make something else, which it actually would be worth his while to buy right? Like a basket. People can use baskets. Baskets are cool, but you have to just remind them people that they need a basket. Uh, And this is where the next line is literally the shift where he's, I, b- I believe um, is talking about um he, I too had woven a kind of basket of a delicate texture, but I had not made it worth anyone's while to buy them. Um, I believe here he's talking about his writing, right? Because as we said Um, He was having issues with his editor, not only Margaret Fuller, but I think also Horace Greeley and everywhere else. He was sending it like um, uh, anything that was signed by Thoreau was not automatically taken as gold. There were a lot of editors that are like, thank you very much. We don't really need a, you know, 5000 word treatise on um, this random thing about trees. But thank you very much and keep writing. So he's kind of talking about like all of the stuff that he's worked on um, and he hasn't, you know, and he's sort of calling out, you know, he's like, well, I, I created things and I wasn't thinking about convincing people. I wasn't thinking about talking people into it or whatever. So again, like playing on lawyers know how to do this. There are people, there are other writers who know how to do it, right? Like Mark Twain was great at convincing people to buy his stuff, uh he literally knew so Samuel Clemens literally understood the power of persona so that as soon as anybody a publisher saw the words Mark Twain on a submission he would be like yeah of course I want to publish this and Thoreau Thoreau didn't get that so all th- like um Thoreau and Twain had never actually met um Thoreau died in uh 62 and that's literally uh, um, like that summer is essentially the summer when Samuel Clemens, um, started publishing as Mark Twain. So I always think that that's a really interesting thing. So I feel like Mark Twain is kind of a generation, um, after Thoreau and, and Thoreau is sort of one of the first great thinkers of America. So this is, this is kind of just the progression of, um, of, you know, American, American literature right here. Um, And so to continue, um, right. Yeah. Okay. So I had not made it worth, worth anyone's while to buy them yet. Not the less in my case did I think it worth my while to weave them. And instead of studying how to make it worth men's wiles to buy my baskets, quote unquote, I studied rather how to avoid the necessity of selling them because selling them is degrading. It's hard. The life which men praise and regard as successful is but one kind, why should we exaggerate any one kind at the expense of the others? Um, so then he, he's like, and kind of because of all this, I gave up. And, and this is a joke. I turned my face more exclusively than ever to the woods where I was better known. Like better known by who? The chipmunks? Yes. The squirrels? Yes. He's like, these are my friends I determined to go into business at once and not wait to acquire the usual capital using such slender means as I had already got. Uh, my purpose in going to Walden was not to live cheaply nor to live dearly there, but to transact some private business with the fewest obstacles. Um, you know, like, I wanted to go to write and meditate and hang out in nature and, like, and not have to worry about this, this public exchange um, to be hindered from accomplishing, which for want of a little common sense, a little enterprise and business talent appeared not so sad as foolish. All right. And then the next like two pages is kind of hysterical because this is just this extended metaphor of, um, if your trade is with the celestial empire, um, you know, he's, he's, he starts yeah he so he starts with I've always endeavored to acquire strict business habits they are indispensable to every man um you know everybody should understand what business is and if you're going to be somebody and this is this is getting to the like pull yourself up by your bootstraps you have to understand the rules of the game um but he's he's, he's saying like, even if your trade is with the celestial empire, right. Um, and you know, some small counting house on the coast, some Salem Harbor, Salem was a a big deal town. Um, not just for the witch trials, but Nathaniel Hawthorne had worked there as a, um, um, a, a trade, uh, uh, like accountant. What is it? A, uh, uh, he collected taxes on all of the, the ships and stuff. Um, and they were friends. Um, so anyway, so he, he makes this, he does like two pages of all of these things that you have to do, that you have to account for all of these little things to read every letter received, to write or read every letter sent, all of these things. And this is essentially the description of, um, what it's like to sort of create your own business and he's he's doing it I think as a little bit of a joke as a little bit of a um you know you have to you have to be aware of what business is, and he's literally listing everything out, but he's also saying this is the this is the stuff you have to do, even if you are an artist or a writer um you know, or even if you're just a private person a private philosopher, you still have to understand um, all of the extent of what your, of what your business is. And, you know, you can't just, um, you can't just exist, but you have to make sure that you're dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's. Um, and just, just for me speaking personally, I felt like as I was reading this, this really speaks to me. I, um, I used to work in a very, uh, corporate world. I used to deal with business. I understand business. Um, I actually have an MBA. I, I understand it. Um, I don't like that world. (laughs) I, I never did. I don't really, my, I feel like my character just doesn't suit it. Um, but now that I'm out of it, I'm actually trying to, um, build a, I don't know. I don't know if it's a brand or just a new, um, Am I an, I'm a playwright. I'm an author or I want to be an author of books. I'm an author of like short stories and things like that. Um, you're building again, this is like, is it a brand? Is it a persona? Um, I'm working on a Facebook group, the transcendentalist 2021, where we're reading through all of the works of the transcendentalists. Um, or at least I've selected 12 authors, um, but as the social media world allows, there are so many posts that cover everybody else and abolition and equality and um, feminist rights and um, Native American rights. And I wanted—I'm bringing in um, voices of Native Americans, and and it's it's a, a really amazing me how diverse and incredible this whole world is. And instead of having to edit things out like you would if you're preparing a book, I actually love the idea of um, bringing more people in, right? And not just historical figures, but also other historians and trying to get their perspective. And because at the same time, I'm a student as well. So I feel like I'm creating a community I, I and and I don't know that this is going to bring in money, but I'm still trying to be as careful about how I'm constructing this so that it's going to benefit the project and the idea of transcendentalists and all of these things. Um, But it's a big deal trying to just handle all the details of making sure that um, that the podcast goes out, that there are different posts every day. Um, I'm also taping a video series and how am I booking guests and am I following up and so all these things. So I feel like he's he's sort of, um, as I was reading this, I was like, yes, you have to do everything um, to just to track yourself and your mind as a reader, as a writer, as an artist, as somebody who you think you're not in business, but you are in business, um, which I think is a really great and kind of difficult point to um, collapse and condense and articulate. And I feel like he's, he's doing it really well. Um, but anytime a writer chooses to do two pages where I don't know if it's just like one long sentence, <laughs> cause it's a lot of, it's a lot of semicolons. Um, and you know, he, he risks losing his, uh, his readers. Um, but I think he's also, um, just trying to list out everything that, he's, uh, he's thinking of, I have thought that Walden Pond would be a good place for business, not solely on account of the railroad and the ice trade. It offers advantages, which may not be good policy to divulge. Um, it's a good post, a good foundation. Um, and although you have to build your own stuff inside of Walden Pond, which is what he did, build your own, build your own house there. Um, and so I mentioned about the railroad and the ice trade. So the railroad was actually being built while he was there. Um, and it, it was, so he was there for two years, two months and two days. Um, and now that I'm talking about it, he, he did hear the trains going by. I'm not sure when the first trains actually went through Concord, but it was right around his time. And I know that there were um, workers um, building the tracks nearby. Um, he ended up selling the cabin, Um, Or no, he ended up um, buying, and we're we're going to find out in this book, aren't we? Um, Buying um, pieces of the cabin, I believe, from the Irish laborers to construct it. And then the cabin itself, um, spoiler alert, ends up as a shelter for pigs. (laughs) So... um, just to tell you that piece. Uh, so anyway, but but the point I'm trying to make is that the railroad was still semi-under construction while he was there, but he did hear the trains going by. Um, so it must have been finished to some extent at some point. Um, and then there was also the ice trade, which is actually really huge. Um, if you visit Walden Pond, directly opposite the, ba- the um, bathhouse is a little cove called Ice Fort Cove. Um, and it's, it's the one not quite closest to the train tracks, but it's, um, sort of the one that's most directly opposite. And if you're at Thoreau's Cove, you can see that it's really just off to your right. So he was within like a five minute walk of, um, of getting to the ice fort. And frankly, um, harvesting ice was such a huge thing back then. Um, the ice industry was really just, um, just getting going. And the fact that there was ice, um, I believe it was able to be directly loaded onto the, um, the freight cars. So that was this huge business where, you know, you just had the rights to take away the water and then, you know, you could, you could go. So you're essentially making money out of stuff that you don't actually, like materials that you don't have to buy. You just have to pay for the labor. And there are people I've been, I went to a, a lecture at Walden Pond last year where some guy talked for like two hours about it. It was a whole big process. Um, some people still do it today. Um, but back then it was like, you know, you had horses on the ice. And, and when the ice was thick enough, you could really, um, you know, you could make a tremendous amount of money. Um, and people who did ended up sending the ice all across the world, including India. So anyway, um, and Thoreau does talk about that. But I, I wanted to mention that because that's not just something that he's randomly throwing in. That's literal examples of, yes, Walden Pond was used for commerce. Um, also, Walden Pond, I hate to tell you this, was used as an amusement park a little bit after um, Thoreau left. Um, he, well, not, not a little bit, um, he, at the, I want to say at the end of the 1800s, um, but there were, there was like a horse, uh, a dog racing track, and there were, um, buildings and structures, and there's a, um, there's a lovely picture from the literally from somebody standing, like, at the, uh, um, at the train tracks, um, and there's a, there's a little sign that says Walden, um, and you see Walden, and then you see all these other, like, people just came for the day, and, um, you know, it's a, that's a whole other topic, but it's, it's part of Walden history. I think it, it came down, um, I think in the early 1900s. So it wasn't, it wasn't like that for a while. Um, when I was growing up, there was a cement, um, uh, diving dock on the main beach, which I haven't seen a lot of pictures of, cause I don't think they want to <laughs> encourage that kind of documentation. Um, but Walden has been used actually for a lot of um, a lot of things because honestly, it's a great place to swim and it's a great place to be during the summer. And as a person who grew up 20 minutes away, I was there so much during my, like every summer of my life. So, um, don't think of it as the, or you, you don't have to think of it as a holy place where, you know, the, the water is, you know, so great that it can't be touched. It's constantly in use. And um, it was actually used by the Native Americans um, as a holy place as well. Um, but it's also a place for recreation. Um, anyway, so the <laughs> then he gets into this whole clothing section. All right, so let's talk about the clothing. Um, and I think the clothing part is kind of fun. Um, especially his his whole thing of like let him who has work to do recollect that the object of clothing is first to retain the vital heat. That's the whole point of clothes, right? Uh, to protect the body, and secondly, in this state of society, it's to cover nakedness. Um, and he may judge how much of any necessary important work may be accomplished without adding to this wardrobe. Uh, kings and queens, right, who wear a suit but once. Um, except for emperors that have no clothes, ha ha ha, Um, and really, so he gets into this whole thing of like, why is it so bad to have a patch in your clothes, why is it so bad to, like, not be comfortable, why is it so bad to, like, to wear clothes that show signs of wear, um, and patches, and, um, he's using the word rent for tear, um, rather than rent as, like, having to pay money on a property. Um, and it would be easier for them to hobble to town on a broken leg than with a broken pantaloon. Um, I think he, he's exaggerating, I hope, but, uh, I don't know how picky people in Concord were back then. Um, I do know that even today, it's a very, um, rich community and people are very, um, people are very fancy there. Um, but I think there are also a lot of like, um, hippies and people who walk their dogs and, you know, just normal families who are living their everyday lives. So I wouldn't say that it's a matter that everything has to be perfect, but I do know those type of people who need for, you know, if they, if there's anything in their house and it's, you know, the least bit broken, they'll just throw it out and get a new one or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think we can generalize, um, to, to that sort of attitude. Um, and I like how he's talking about like, uh, how he's recognizing farmers by how they dress their scarecrows. Um, and so he also mentions, um, Madame Pfeiffer. So there is this amazing woman who was a world traveler. Uh, she grew up and loved wearing boys clothes and would, you know, her first, her first trip, she went to Egypt when she was five with her family. Um, She loved the idea of travel. She actually went around the world twice. She was born in 1797. And I think she died in like 1858, something like that. Um, And she had published a bunch of books. And I think it's amazing because she was also she's known as like, this is the first female traveler. And this is the first woman who's who's going around the world, like let alone going around it twice. And and journeying and and whatever, and so Thoreau is often very proud of never really leaving Concord for an extended amount of time, um, for the most part, and sort of seeing the world through Concord. Um, and I wonder if there, um, probably when he's writing this, there's a little bit of wanderlust, um, you know, as I'm sure there is with anybody who sort of sticks with their hometown. Um, but he's, he, so he's obviously read her or he knows of her. Um, but I think it's interesting. The only piece that he actually talks, talks about when he's referring to her is when she's talking about clothes. So he's saying when Madame Pfeiffer in her adventurous travels around the world from East to West had got so near home as Asiatic Russia, she says that she felt the necessity of wearing other than a traveling dress when she went to meet the authorities for she was now in a civilized country where people are judged of by their clothes. Um so I think that that she's also she was also known as like an ethnographer and one of the first people to actually talk about what it's like to visit um other cultures and to comment on that and of course one of the most obvious things to talk about is how people dress or, or you know their states of undress um and I think that it's Henry's Henry's attitude about um, dress and how people appear and is sort of shaped by his idea of the conquered society. So I feel like he's kind of missing the bigger picture of Madame Pfeiffer. Um, but you know, he's, he is, he is including her. So that's a good thing. Um, but I think he's being a little, um, I like, I don't want to say that he's shallow by choosing this piece to talk about, but I feel like it's definitely a missed opportunity for him to not weave her in, um, in another, in another way. Um, because I feel like this is the first time I've ever heard of her. I'm very glad he includes her at all, but, uh, uh, like how does he feel about the rest of her travels? Like, that's actually what I want to know. And, uh, I don't want to hear him like, poo-poo women and how women are only interested in dresses and stuff like that. Um, You know, he's, he is pointing out like an ethnographic ethnographical um, statement that she has made. So I think that that piece is interesting, but come on, Henry, you could do something a little bit, a little bit more interesting with that, with her, Uh, or maybe he didn't actually read her stuff. And maybe he only knows about her through newspapers, I'm making assumptions, um, all right. So, and then this, my, this section ends, um, with like his favorite, uh, or one of, one of the favorite, uh, quotes, um, uh, where is it? Uh, beware of all enterprises that require new clothes and not rather a new wearer of clothes. Um, the beware of all enterprises that require new clothes is like a bumper sticker. It's really common. It's, kind of everywhere. Every time I, I personally, when I mentioned before that I was doing corporate work, every time I felt like I had to go out and buy something, you know, you, you buy something that would be good for the office and it's a, a jacket and like a white blouse and all this, like whatever. I always had that sort of ringing in the back of my mind. Um, but I actually really like that he's developing this idea that clothes are, you know, like the our molting season right like this is just this extra layer that we have to protect our skin and you know even though there's all these sayings of like clothes make the man and um you know dress to impress and dress for the job that you want he's kind of reminding us here that like nope clothes are just artificial they're just this extra layer uh we you know it it, (laughs) if you're wearing a nice outfit but you have like a um, corrupted conscience, then like, that's so much worse. And you should actually pay more attention to that, which I totally get. Um, and so, um, I think that, and then he, he, uh, the next, the next piece is also going to be about, um, garments and, and things like that. So I'm sure he's going to have more to say about that. Um, if there is not a new man, how can the new clothes be made to fit? If you have any enterprise before you, try it in your own clothes. Um, all men want not something to do with, but something to do, or rather something to be. Um, so actually I feel like that folds back rather nicely to the beginning of the chapter, where um like whatever whatever it is you do as a career it should or you do for work or you do for money it should feel like something that's a little bit more genuine um and you shouldn't have to put on a costume <laughs> you shouldn't have to present a false um face to the world um cuz that's going to really mess up your mind um and 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 create more stress and it's just a false, um, a false thing. If you, uh, if you have any enterprise before you try it in your own, cl- your old clothes, um, Henry ended up becoming a surveyor, um, because he would just walk everywhere and he figured, well, I can actually make money, um, measuring stuff while I'm out. Cause I like to go to the weirdest places in Concord and, and there's lots of woods and lots of fields and, um, and there still are today. Um, so he, he was one of the people who knew the most about the land, um, as well as some, um, African-Americans who were living in Concord at the time. Uh, Brister Freeman was known as one of the people who knew Concord and he was a formerly enslaved person. Um, and he had a house, um, near, uh, Walden Pond. And anyway, that's gonna, he, I believe he, uh, he appears later in the, um, Neighbors chapter. All right, well, that's it for now. Thank you very much.